All right, good to see you all here today, and we're, of course we're going to take a little break for a week or two. We've been burying ourselves in the book of Ephesians, not a bad thing to do. I think it's worthwhile to take the time to dig in and study all of that, but it's Christmas season, and we want to make sure that we don't, that we, that we don't fail to cast the proper emphasis. Everything about, it's kind of amazing, Christmas has just simply been hijacked, right? You, you go out there, and the, the one thing that you won't hear very much, well, very rarely will you hear anything that has anything to do with our Lord Jesus, right? The other day we went down, um, uh, you'll probably be happy to hear this, by the way, um, did a CAT scan this week, came back, blood test, everything is great, numbers are perfect, everything is gone, thank you, Jesus. So, <clears throat> but I went down to the uh, Summit Medical Place where, where they do all this stuff, which is the group that... Uh, that has been that I've been associated with for all these years, um, and uh, I went in and there, they have like a little player piano there, and it was playing all hymns, and I was kind of stunned by it. I'm walking through the lobby, and, and you know there's maybe angels from the realms of glory or something like that, and I went up to the uh, to the person who was kind of the there to help people and direct people if they needed to you know find out where to go or what have you, and I just said I just really appreciate the fact that you have this this music that's playing here in the lobby because it's just such an unusual thing these days. Everything is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman and, and everything but, right? Everything but the, re the one who is the reason for the season. So certainly we, uh, we want to give adequate and proper attention to the birth of our Lord Jesus. What a glorious, what a glorious and wonderful... Um, comes up a little later on in the message, um, but it's, it is, Paul says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And he's using a word there that he's used elsewhere. He talks about in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he says, I knew a man in Christ some years ago who was caught up into the third heaven, whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. But he was caught, and while he was up there, he heard things that it would be unlawful to try to put into human words. It would profane them, right? So it's, it's, you can only, we're left to our imagination as to what it was that he experienced. But it is, according to what he said, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Huh? Praise God. So we want to take some time to, uh, to dwell on that. And the title for uh, the message here today is, And His Name Shall Be Called. So you probably recognize that phrase. It comes from Isaiah chapter 9, and the passage of Scripture says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And we don't have that part. It says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. You see, this, this lordship of Jesus, this son who was given unto us, this child who has been given unto us, he is destined to rule the universe. And it is happening. It is continuing to happen, and you and I are proof of it. And although right now, I would say we're kind of in somewhat of a, kind of a dark moment, don't you think? It's, but this is probably, the, I think this is probably the darkest time, just in terms of people who seem to be in control and have their hands on the wheel and are, you know, uh, taking, the, taking things where they want them, where they, they think that they should go, right? Um, it, it's, it makes you wonder, gee, has, you know, has, has, is the devil taking over? You know, is darkness taking over? Is darkness going to win? And it, uh, you know, and, and there are different times and have been different times because that this struggle back and forth, different times when it just seems like, wow, like the lights are going out or something. But the good news is of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will be seated on the throne of David, his father. And so this is the, the, uh, th this is the word 
that you and I always want to focus our concentration on, right? It says that in the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow of things in heaven, things on earth, and things under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's, that's what's up. That's what's happening. And that's where it's going to go. And the good news is you and I can get on board this train right now. People, get ready. There's a train coming. You don't need no ticket. You just get on board. All you need is faith to hear the diesels humming. You don't need no ticket. You just thank the Lord. Great old song. But we got to get down to our message. During the 1960s, a phenomenon called Peanuts was born. The comic strip began to be featured all over America in newspapers. Just had simple characters, simple stories. It's not a perfect recipe for a daily dose of innocence. And of course, none of this was lost on the folks in Madison Avenue. CBS first approached Charles Schultz, who you probably know is the creator of the comic strip, Peanuts, um, with an idea of, of an animated Christmas special that would feature Charlie and Lucy and Linus and the whole crew. So Schultz agreed, the work began, and CBS was quick to review the script. Schultz titled the, uh, the program or the special, A Charlie Brown Christmas. CBS liked it. On the opening scene, Charlie Brown, on his tiptoes, peeked into his snow-covered mailbox, hoping to find a Christmas card, but to no avail. Once again, disappointed, disheartened, feeling dejected, he stopped by Lucy's psychiatric booth to mourn the commercialism of Christmas. Lucy agreed, adding her own little lament. Christmas is nothing but a lot of stupid toys. What I really want is real estate. CBS loved it. In the next scene, Charlie became further disillusioned as Snoopy was decorating his doghouse with strings of lights and gaudy decorations in hopes of winning a neighborhood contest. Good grief, <laughs> said Charlie Brown. That's great, said CBS. Even Sally, Charlie's sister, was caught up in all the Christmas stuff. She recruited him to take dictation for a letter to Santa. Dear Santa, just send dollars. Preferably 10s and 20s. More laughter from CBS. As the story progressed, Lucy sent Charlie to pick out a Christmas tree for their neighborhood pageant with instructions that they wanted him to find a big, shiny aluminum tree, maybe painted pink. But Charlie couldn't do it. Instead, he brought back a real, however small, pathetic, lifeless tree, and the kids hated it. You blockhead, Charlie Brown, they shouted. That's good. That's really good, said CBS. Frustrated, Charlie said, what is Christmas about anyway? And then Linus stepped into the spotlight, and he answered Charlie Brown's question. This is what he said. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign to you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Hold everything, said CBS. You can't be reciting Bible verses on national television, especially not from the King James Version. You'll alienate our viewers. You'll chase away our advertisers. The tree can stay, but the Bible's going to have to go. Schultz stood firm. If I can't tell the Christmas story, he said, you can't have the peanuts cast. If the Bible reading goes, so do they. CBS considered the fast-approaching deadline. 
and gulped. Okay, it stays. But we're going to pay a terrible price for this. And sure enough, on the night of the Charlie Brown Christmas special, the CBS switchboard was flooded with calls from all around the country. Everyone asked the same question. When can we have more Charlie Brown Christmas, Christmas specials? Soon, said CBS. Soon. Very soon. And that night, a TV tradition was born. 50% of America tuned in to watch a Charlie Brown Christmas. It won an Emmy Award. It won a Peabody Award. And TV Guide claimed that the Linus Bible reading was one of the top 35 moments in television history. And a Charlie Brown Christmas became the longest-running Christmas special on CBS. It's crazy, isn't it? Right? How much Hollywood and Madison Avenue, and they get, get this Jesus out of here. We'll take everything and anything but, but no Jesus. And yet, this is what always happens when Jesus is presented among common people of goodwill. Peace on earth and goodwill to men, which those angels, um, as those angels heralded those shepherds uh, so long ago. So this, um, the story of Jesus' birth was never meant to be something hidden or something um, mysterious or something to be, to be a secret. And as the angel said, Jesus' birth was good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. Actually, the birth of Christ was foretold hundreds of years before he was born. The prophet Isaiah spoke of Jesus' birth 700 years before he was born. In one of the, mo in one of the most well-known Old Testament prophecies, Isaiah told us what Jesus would be called. He said in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And each of those names gives, a, gives us a description of who Christ Jesus is and what it is that he would do. When Isaiah wrote that prophecy about the coming of the wonderful counselor, he was encouraging Israel to remember the promise of Messiah and that that promise was still yet to be fulfilled and that God would, in fact, come fulfill and establish his kingdom. He was writing 750 years before Christ. It was a very tumultuous time in Israel's history. The Assyrians were on the march. The Assyrians had already taken the, completely the northern half of the land of Israel. They had taken captive, taken possession of Israel. They had taken the people out and deported them back to Assyria as slaves. They had repopulated that, that entire northern area. And now Sennacherib, who was the, the head or the, the king of Assyria, was on his way down to Jerusalem, and they were ready to take the southern half as well. Uh, Isaiah's prophecy gave the people the hope that they so desperately needed. A child was yet to be born who would fulfill the covenant promises that God had made with their fathers Abraham and with David. He would bear the titles Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The child, of course, was Christ. It had major significance and implications for, that, for, for those people of Israel at that particular time, but of course, it has every bit as much significance and implications for us at this time. The prophecy will ultimately, as I said before, reach its fullest consummation at Christ's second coming. So let's break it down a little bit. And let's look at those different terms and, and, and find out like what, what is being communicated to us in those, in those four names. The first one is he, is called, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor. The Hebrew word wonderful literally means marvelous miraculous, incomprehensible, unfathomable. It's a much weightier word than the way we normally use the word wonderful in our day-to-day day -day conversation. We could say that something is wonderful if it's nice, if it's pleasant, if it's lovely, if it's, it's, if it's, it's, even, if it's even likable. But Jesus, Jesus is wonderful in a way that is boggling to the mind. In that passage that I referenced before in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is speaking to the people in Corinth because they are raising some money for 
saints who have become impoverished in Jerusalem. And Paul is going to take their offering back to Jerusalem and distribute it among these people who, uh, who now are living in destitute poverty. And he's writing to them, and he, and he tells them, he, he, it's, it's a whole chapter really about giving. Probably you all should read that somehow. But it's a, it, it's a, this whole, and he's saying, I, I don't want there to be duress. I don't want anybody to feel under pressure when I get there. I don't, we, don't, we don't want this kind of, a, of, a, of an impetus to, to raising money. When I get there, I, to have the money ready for me. And then he makes one statement that I'm sure you're familiar with if you've been a church person for any length of time. He says, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the word, um, I know I've heard it 10 zillion times, but of course we like to talk about giving in church. But it, the word is hilarios. The Greek word is hilarios. And it means, and of course, people say, God loves a hilarious giver. And sure enough, and I, I hope that you can say that you are a hilarious giver, that you have joy in giving, that you delight in giving. And at the end of that whole kind of exhortation that he's bringing to them, where he's encouraging them about how to give and um, how to feel about giving, how to, what, what kind of an attitude should be behind their giving, he says, he adds this one, this 15th verse of, that comes at the end of that chapter, and he says, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Other translations say, Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Others say, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Other, trans, other translations say, Thanks be to God for this gift that he has given that is too wonderful for words. In other words, he's saying that no amount of human language could ever serve to adequately and completely articulate the wonder of what God has given and that is expressed to us when it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And, and, and as I said before, he's using that same word when he talks about the experience that he had when he was stoned to death on, in one of his missionary journeys. And they dragged him out of town, assuming that he was dead, but he was revived. But during that time, and he writes about it later on, he says, I, I know a man. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I have no idea. And about 14 years ago, that man was caught up into the third heaven. And there he heard things that were so incredible, so wonderful. He experienced things that were so incredible that, would, that it would be criminal. It would be unlawful to actually try to take human words and express all of that. And that's really the same sentiment that is being presented there when Paul says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The Messiah will cause us, or should cause us, to be full of wonder. And I'd like you to keep that in mind when you see the commercial for the 27 millionth time of the couple that's in their driveway and the guy went out and got his wife a new Lexus. And there they are standing in the driveway and holy mackerel, there's a, there's a brand new... Now, of course, it's just bizarre and stupid, right? And, and, and again, I think the thing that makes me... Commercials make me nuts. Can I get a witness on that? Right? Commercials make me crazy. I thank God for a remote control because it allows me to escape to some other place, and hopefully that, they won't be showing commercials at the same time. But, but the, kind of, the commercials that really make me nuts are the ones that I see again and again and again and again, and I don't want that thing. I'm not, it, like it has no appeal to me whatsoever, but I'm again and again, and that's kind of the way that... Commercial, but I think it's connected with that commercial. You'll often hear that Christmas song. I think it may be like, it's, it's certainly within the top five of Christmas songs. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Right, that whole old Andy, uh, what's his name? Andy Williams song, right? And, uh, and when we think of that, it is meant to be the most wonderful time of the year. Wonder. Full, for his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. It is meant to be full of wonder. Unfortunately, the world has missed the point. 
that the wonder is not the gifts, the wonder is not the season, the wonder is not the snow, the wonder is not Frosty the Snowman, the wonder is not Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the wonder is not even Santa Claus. The wonder is the one who is wonderful in counsel. And so keep that in mind. And when that, when that commercial comes up, remember that Pastor Steve encouraged you to think Jesus. Think Jesus right then and there. Jesus demonstrated his wonderfulness in a host of ways while he was on the earth. Being conceived in the womb of a virgin girl, I'd call that wonderful. He showed his wonderful um, his power over sickness and over disease. He, he, he showed himself wonderful in, in the amazing teaching that he did. The, the, remember, the guards were sent to arrest him. They came back. Harris said, how come you didn't bring him back? They said, nobody ever spoke like this man. We've never heard words like this before. His per he, by living a perfectly sinless life, and of course by his resurrection from the dead. His teaching is wonderful. It is incomprehensible. It is unfathomable in terms of its death. He taught many wonderful things that are completely counterintuitive to the human mind. For instance, if we go to the, um, <clears throat> the Sermon on the Mount, and of course the first thing in the Sermon on the Mount are the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes all start with the word blessed or blessed, right? And that word blessed is makarios in Greek. And it is, it is a word that is a built-in exclamatory word, an exclamation. In other words, there should be an exclamation point after that word. And what it, the, what it really means, what it meant to the Greek readers was, oh, the happiness of the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All oh, the happiness of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. All oh, the And he goes through all these different things. But there's some interesting ones that are in there. For instance, he says, all oh, the happiness of those who mourn. Huh? Somewhat counterintuitive, right? For they shall be comforted. All oh, the happiness that you have when men shall revile you and persecute you shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. He said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those that despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on evil and good, sends forth rain on the just and on the unjust, he said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. He said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. He said, give and it shall be given. So his teaching is wonderful. And, and although the things that Christ Jesus teaches us are counterintuitive to the natural way that the, that the mind works, um, his teaching is awe-inspiring, it is, it is superior, it lifts us up to an entirely different and enlightened view of life of God, of one another, of the purpose and significance for, uh, for which we live. So, we'll, uh, we'll pick this phrase apart a little bit. Because Jesus shall be called Wonderful Counselor, there will be no confusion. Now, when you hear the word counselor, what is it that comes to mind? We might be tempted to think of like modern-day counselors, a shrink, psychiatrists, psychologists, Somebody like that. But a, a counselor in the Bible has to do with someone who gives leadership, who gives direction, who gives guidance. And that's true to some degree of people who are in the counseling business. Um, we try to lead people in the right direction. But perhaps you have that kind of picture in your mind. When we're talking about the counselor, you have, you have the picture of the guy who's sitting in the comfy chair. He's got a pad in his hand. He's got a pencil or a pen or something like that. And this other poor soul is laying on a couch and spilling his, spilling his guts out, right? Talking about all the problems, all the difficulties that are going through. And, and the counselor does little more than just to write down what the person says, and then he responds by saying things like, uh-huh, right, uh-huh. How did that make you feel? Right? And it, like, if, if you've ever watched it, it is, it's like, and I'm sorry, if, if counseling is helping you, I'm not knocking it. So if you're, if you're, being, if you're in counseling with someone, um, please do not think that Pastor Steve has a, an attitude towards you. But it, it, there's just kind of a, a conventional thing that like, okay, so this person is getting the opportunity to vent and get all this stuff off of their chest, but then they walk out and nothing really has been resolved, nothing has been solved. But when Jesus comes into our life, 
things be, the chaos begins to be resolved. That's why he, he can be called the wonderful counselor. <coughs> Excuse me. In the times of Israel, the kings of Israel, David had a counselor. David's counselor was Nathan. It was, he was his seer. The other kings had counselors, and, and they were usually wise, older, more godly men who would advise the king according to God's wisdom. If you think to the time uh, of the story of Rehoboam, right? Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. And after Solomon, Solomon, while he was king, did all these projects. Man, he had all kinds of things going on. He built all these things. He did all these things. And, uh, but in order to do all that stuff, he had to like, seriously tax the people. And so they were paying heavy, heavy taxes. Of course, they built the temple at this time. They built Jerusalem at this time. They walled Jerusalem at this time. So all of these things were going on. But it was very heavily, it was bringing very heavy taxation um, to the people. And so when Solomon died, the people were lobbying for like a break. And so they go to Rehoboam, Solomon's son. They say, hey, listen, your father taxed us. He was killing us with taxes. If, if, If you could, think you can lighten things up a little bit. So he went to um, the older gentleman, the uh, wiser gentleman, and asked them what they thought. And they said, yeah, sounds like a good idea. But he wasn't satisfied with that advice. So he went to his friends. And his friends told them, are you kidding? You tell those people, my father, my, my little pinky is, is going to be thicker than my father's waist. In other words, if you thought my father was heavy duty, it was nothing compared to who I'm going to be. And so the people from the whole northern section said, well, that's it. We're out. We're done with you and done with Jerusalem and done with Judah. Treaty broken. We're out of here. And this is what actually caused the rift between Israel and Judah and separated the land of Israel, or the, the, the Holy Land or the, the, the land of Israel into two separate parts. So um, Jesus has come to impart and to give good counsel Wise counsel. His name shall be called Wonderful in Counsel. Where do you get counsel? Where do you get your advice? What? How do you? How, uh, where, what is it that from? From from what do you derive your understanding of how to chart the course for your life? Where does it come from? There are so many different things. It, you know, is it uh, Doctor Phil, maybe, or Oprah Winfrey, or you know, all the, the the pundits on TV, Sean Hannity, or. Rush, although that, that doesn't work anymore. But, you know, the, 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 the talking heads, on, you know, that, that are, are filled with, allegedly filled with wisdom. Where do you get your counsel? Where do you get your life guidance from? I have to say that there is the, 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 the counsel of Christ Jesus comes into one's life and immediately begins to work because it puts, it, it, it shines the light on falsehood and on error, like it says about the Word of God, the Word of God is alive. And remember, Jesus is the Word, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces down to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and penetrates down to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Where do you get your counsel from? The more you get your advice from the word of God, the more you actually take the counsel of the word of God and, and bring it into your life and like bring it into your, into your thinking so that it's more than just like an add-on, but it actually becomes the basis for the choices and decisions that you make in this world. The more that you'll do that, I will promise you, I, I give you a 100% assurance, the more that you do that, the more orderly, the more peaceful, the more joyful life will become because now we are no longer walking in what I think but I'm walking in what he says. You remember the, the whole thing in, in Isaiah chapter 55 where he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts, my ways higher than your ways. And then he goes on to say something. He says, for as the, he- for as the, the, heavens, the rain comes down from the heavens and does not return except that it, is cause, it causes the, uh, the earth to water and then it may give um, seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes forth out of my mouth. It will accomplish the thing to which I have purposed it. It will succeed in the thing to which I have sent it. In other words, God's word spoken into your life, my life, will unmask every pretension 
So it may not make you comfortable. I remember, uh, I think it was Glenn Beck who said that. He said, the, the truth will set you free, but first it'll probably make you miserable. <laughs> right? Because it will expose. The truth will expose the error, the falsehood, the, the, the pretensions, the biases, all of these all of these things that are in us by nature, the, the Word of God will expose all of, those, all of those kinds of things. So his counsel in, uh, is wonderful because Christ informs us about what life is really all about, about the love of God, about who God is, about who we are, about God's plan, about God's purpose. We're told in, in, in Colossians 2.3 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and in knowledge. All of the answers to life's questions are available through the Word of God, and the Word of God is the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the source of truth. He doesn't say, I know the truth. He says, I am the truth. Right? And, and the word truth in the New Testament, aletheia, means the reality at the basis of appearance. Aletheia means the reality at the basis of appearance. Our world is all appearance. Image is everything. That's a commercial, isn't it? Right? And image is everything in our world. But the reality of Jesus, Jesus is the reality at the base. You can dig into anything in the world. It may look wonderful. It may seem like the most wonderful thing ever. But in reality, when you get to it, you'll find out, oh, there's problems in there. And, but in Jesus, that's the thing that, that um, so amazes me. Because the more a person will dig into Jesus himself, if a person wants to base their opinion or their impression of Christianity on me or on you, it's going to be a problem. Because all of us are simply trying to live up to the standard. And I am not the measure of Christianity. I'm working at it. I'm wanting to live there. I'm wanting my life to reflect the wisdom and the goodness and the grace of God. I want all that stuff to happen. And, and trying to be successful, all that, but I am not the measure, nor are you. The measure of Christianity is Christ himself. And you can look as deep as you want to. I was thinking this week, you know, if there was no Jesus, we would have to invent one, but we never would. We would never invent love on that level. Self-sacrificial, agape love. We don't know what that's about. We don't do that. A love that completely surrenders itself for the well-being of the beloved one. But the more a person will look at the life of Jesus, the more you will say, that's what everything ought to be. That's the way everything ought to be. So it is to him that we must turn in, uh, to make sense of life's confusing, confusion. I'm sorry. He is the counselor. He knows all about you. He knows the needs of your heart. He knows how to answer those needs. He is always a wonderful counselor to those who will hear and obey him. Okay, so Jesus is the wonderful counselor, but also he's the mighty God. And because Jesus is called, because Jesus shall be called the mighty God, there will be no chaos. There's an interesting name, interesting that, that this thing says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Here the child who is born and the son who is given is said to be El Gibor, or the mighty God, or God the mighty one. It is, it is an affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ. It is letting us know that Jesus himself is God. This is the amazing wonder of Christmas time. This is what with this this whole concept of the incarnation. I was thinking, I was working on a couple of different ways to take the message here this morning. I think maybe next week we'll go into the theology of Christmas. Now that may sound dry. That may kind of sound like, oh, theology. I'm not into. Th but the, the the reality of the theology of the incarnation. This idea that God. This is what I was saying before. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll do my little alien thing for a second here. I'm not do my alien thing. But the reason why I do not believe that anywhere in this universe there are extraterrestrial or um, um, other life forms is because our life form, God chose to attach himself to this, to us, the, the children of Adam. Jesus came down to become one of us. He who knew no sin became sin for us 
that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Jesus has so attached, it's kind of like when we were in the book of, of uh, Ephesians, and it said uh, that you may know the exceeding greatness of his power. That power is like the power that he exerted when he raised Christ up from the dead and seated him in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and rule and dominion, all that stuff. But then it says, but you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, in which you uh, lived in times past, in which we all once did, you also he has raised up together to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He has taken on this human nature, but uh, first, Second Peter says, but you and I are partakers of the divine nature. In other words, he actually became a man. He wasn't God with like a man suit on. He actually became incarnated in human flesh and became one of us. Not for a while, not for, you know, just some length of time, forever. And you and I are destined to be the bride of Christ. Another, we will be his eternal companion. We will be his eternal consort. We are as linked together with Christ as a bride is to her husband. All right? Once that covenant vow is made, it is a to death to do us part type of a, a matter. There's, there's no back door. There is no way out. Obviously, I know relationships don't work and marriages sometimes don't work. But the way it was intended was that there would be a, a companionship, a, a, a relationship that would be lifelong and lasting and that would fulfill the, God's mutual plan for the two partners and that it would be inviolable, unbreakable. Well, that's the same thing that's happened between us and Christ. So I don't, I don't know what else is out in the universe, lots of planets and lots of stars and lots of interesting, excuse me, interesting things out there. But I don't believe there are any other life forms because God has so exalted humanity. Why? I'm not altogether sure yet. But I have a feeling, that, like he said in, the, uh, in, in that same chapter 2 of Ephesians, that in the ages to come, he might show us the exceeding richness of his grace expressed in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God has, you know, sometimes I watch, Seth Newton, I'll watch some football games, and it's, and, and it's just amazing what these people can do, isn't it? You want somebody to go off for a pass, and they're catching a ball, and they're dragging a toenail across, like, like you know, a half of a millimeter away from the, the out-of-bounds line, and you think, man, people are really incredible. Or, you know, we've been doing things like, uh, since we've been... Uh, doing our homeschool thing. Into, I've been doing some of the sciences, some of the chemistry and stuff like that. And you realize what people have discovered. Like sometimes, you know, you and I may feel like we're, we're kind of smart because we can learn some things. Maybe you can learn algebra or chemistry or biology or some other science or some other math or something like that. But the, there are people who are smart enough that they can actually figure out what an atom looks like. Nobody will ever, 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 ever see an atom because it is so small that no electron microscope, nothing will be able, no one will ever see an atom. And yet these people like Niels Bohr and Rutherford and all these people who are these scientists of 100 years ago figured out how this thing actually works and how it's made up. I was telling the, the first crew, one, one of the most amazing things, and it's really, a, there's a spiritual truth in here, that in the, in the um, nucleus of an atom, there are protons and there are neutrons. Okay, neutrons are neutrally charged. They have no significance except they provide mass. They provide weight to the atomic structure. And then the protons are all gathered together with those nuclei in the, uh, or in the nucleus with those uh, neutrons. And, and the, the, the relative side, then around the outside at various different orbital levels, there are electrons that are whirling around this nucleus. And they, they move in a variety of different ways and at a variety of different distances from the nucleus. But the distance between the electrons and the, and the uh, uh, neutrons in the nucleus is so great that someone has made this analogy. They said, if you could take one atom and enlarge it to the size of Texas, one atom and enlarge it to the size of Texas, the nucleus of that atom would be the size of a bunch of grapes in the middle of the state of Texas. Now that's crazy, isn't it? That's the relative distance. There is more space in an atom, but here, then there is, there is more space than there is solid material 
in the atomic. There's more space in that chair that you're sitting on than there is solid material. That's unquestionably true. People have learned this. Now, here's, here's an amazing thing. Here's a spiritual truth regarding the reality of how an atom is built. And it, it answers a question that no one has ever been able to answer, right? In the middle are these, uh, is the nucleus. And the nucleus, as I said, is protons and neutrons. Neutrons are neutrally charged. Protons are positively charged. If you know anything about electromagnetism, you know that like charges repel. Take two positive ends of magnets, put them together. They, you can't push them together. They will push each other apart. Like charges repel. Yet, in the nucleus of that atom are all positively charged particles. The law of electron, every understanding of electromagnetism says that thing ought to blow itself to pieces. It should repel itself out of existence. It should, it should just blow up. And yet, it stays together. Now, the question has been asked of the great scientific minds, and they've come up with an answer. What holds that nucleus together is something called the strong force. <laughs> now, here's the crazy part about all that. They, scientists think that they have actually explained something when they've really only described it, and they've made up this concept. The, real, the reality behind that is they have no idea. No idea why that nucleus keeps itself together. But it says of Christ Jesus, in him all things consist, in him all things hold together. So somehow or another, we know who that strong force really is. Praise God, right? And he is holding all things together. And if you can imagine this, the one who is actually who, who made all things, because remember, he was the executive of creation. He carried out the work of creation. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Um, uh, all things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So everything was made by Jesus Christ. And then the one who made everything, the one who made every atom on planet Earth, reduced himself down to become, to join himself with the ovum, ova, with the egg in Mary's womb, and God created this child who is, you'll never remember the, the phrase that's, that's found in Galatians chapter 4, in the, at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under a law. There's not, all of us to some extent are born of a woman, but we are really born of a woman and a man. Every human being is born of a woman and a man, but not Jesus. He was born of a woman. So the one who made everything, that's, I'm just hoping to be able to convey like how, how amazing all of this is. Then he comes and he becomes a human being and attaches himself to us. Here the mighty God who made all things reduces himself down to become a human being and my computer went off. That's not good. But it's back up, I think. No, it's not. One second. There we go. So because Jesus shall be called the mighty God, there shall be no chaos. The mighty God is the affirmation of his deity. Jesus, the word, steps into any one of our lives and, and, and provides wonderful counsel, but also displays his divine power by bringing order out of the chaos. All right, I got to move along here. Number three, because Jesus shall be called everlasting father, there will be no cessation. Now the idea, Jesus' name here is being used in relationship, relationship to time and not relationship to the other members of the Trinity. We know that there is God the Father, he is God the Son, then there is God the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is everlasting. It says in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 10 through 12, you, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will remain, they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will all be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first, and he is the last. He is the beginning and the end. He is the everlasting Father. And from the very start, he already knows how he's going to work it out in your life. If you're facing a terrible problem today, if you're facing a problem that seems utterly unrecon unreconcilable or not addressable, 
God has already got it all fully scoped out. And he has already made to you and I a promise. God works all things together for good to those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. He's got the answer all kind of in his scope. And if you can just chill, that's been one of the great spiritual lessons of all time. You know, just shut up and chill. <laughs> but it's true. If you, if you will give God time, to, if, if we will be patient, right? It, it, the writer of Hebrews says that you have need of patience, and after you have done the will of God, you may then inherit the promise. If you'll just be patient, if you'll be patient with the process, if you'll let God work. See, what happens is, I often think, you know what, we, another verse from Ephesians where he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God has prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Well, it means that God's got it all scoped out. I've just got to be patient enough to let him do what he wants to do. You know, you can't hurry God. You just have to wait. You got to give him some time no matter how long it takes. He's the God that you can't hurry. He'll be there. Don't you worry. He may not come when you want him, but he always comes right on time. How about that old spiritual, right? So God's already got the end worked out from the beginning. He is the sovereign Lord who, who governs over all things. He sees the beginning and the end of everything, and he guarantees that all things will work together for your spiritual good if you are just patient. Okay, and then finally, number four, because Jesus is called the prince of, or shall be called the prince of peace, there will be no conflicts. Isaiah said his name shall be called prince of peace. He offers um, peace from God. Let me get, yeah, here are three aspects of the peace that comes into our life when Christ, when the Prince of Peace is seated on the throne of our heart. He offers peace from God, Romans 1 7, to all who are recipients of his grace. He said to the people of Rome, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That is Paul's perpetual salutation, grace and peace to you from God, from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it says in Ephesians, that has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So he, he, Jesus Christ offers to us the peace that comes from God. Secondarily, oops, did I get that? Yeah. Um, right, he establishes peace with God, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have... Um, been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What an amazing thing. So he's saying, we've already been justified means just as if I'd never sinned. What we have in Jesus is complete justification. Sins have been moved off the table, paid for, complete and full. I am now set free and therefore I am, having been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, I now have peace with God. And I rejoice in the hope of the, of the glory. Oh, I, I can't get off on that. But just, just simply the idea that we have... We, when, when those angels showed up on that Bethlehem hillside and scared the living daylight out of those poor shepherds that were sitting there on that night that Jesus was born, you know, and, and says to them, don't be afraid. And you, I mean, you can imagine the thing, this massive being shows up all bright and lit up, and, and here's these guys, they got to be here like this, like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, right? And then he says, don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you this day is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this is how you'll know that I'm telling you the truth. You would have dipped when you... Anyway, the whole, the whole thing, but it was, an, a, um, it was an angelic embassage sent from heaven to declare peace to the earth and goodwill to men. So God is saying, look, you don't have to be afraid of me anymore because I have worked everything out. That's exactly what he's getting at in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith in God, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access into this grace in which we stand. And finally, he brings, oops, I should have shown you that probably. And finally, he brings the peace of God. Okay, Roman, Philippians chapter 4 says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God always leads us 
that, 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 that passage of Scripture is so important because we are usually driven in this world by anxious thoughts, by anxieties, by pressures, by things that are, you feel, I've got to do something about this. I've got to, I got to make a move. I, got to, I, got to, I have to somehow resolve this. And that, that, kind of a, that kind of a motivation is not God. Because he says, the peace of God which passes all understanding shall guard your heart, keep you in Christ Jesus. And so whenever our peace is being taken away, you can be sure the devil's in that mix somewhere. And he's trying to work you up and get you all anxious and make you all crazy and get you all troubled to make some kind of a dumb, foolish decision that probably you will regret, re, will regret shortly down the line. But if you will say, no, I'm going to let the peace of God. This is not to be inert. It is not to, in some way, justify complacency or anything like that. It is just simply to defer and say, God is in control of my life. And God has never failed. And he can never fail. And so I'm just going to give him some time. I'm going to let him lead this thing and direct. And he leads us into the peace of God, which passes all understanding, which is incomprehensible to our minds. Sometimes your mind will be freaking out, but in reality, just abiding in that peace. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, is what will guard our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So that's what we got here this morning, right? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. He's got all the right information, and he will serve it up to you, and you will be, and you will be blessed. Oh, the happiness of the person who trusts in Christ Jesus. Um, he is the everlasting Father. He is the mighty God. He is the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. This thing is going to keep going and keep growing, and God's going to keep on building. Yeah, we might be in kind of, we're in a battle right now. Okay, there's a lot of darkness right now in our world, and you can't let it rattle you. And it might look like the devil's winning right now in this world because so much is deception, right? So, and so much is fear. But don't let those things control your life. Let the peace of God, which passes under let those things be that which governs your heart and governs your mind and governs your thoughts and governs your, governs your decisions. That's where you want to stay because God has made a promise.